You know, I um, if you've been around here any length of time, you know that, that typically on holidays, um, I tell you that I'm not a holiday speaker. And what I mean by that is on Mother's Day, I don't preach on Mother. I don't have a Mother's Sermon. I'm sorry. I, if I had one, maybe I'd use it. But, you know, some of these guys, they go and get quotes about Mother and all this other kind of stuff and, and do a wonderful job with it. That's just not me. And uh, and it occurred to me that um, uh, this is the first Father's Day that I've been here in the church in several years because usually that uh, our vacation time falls around Father's Day and somebody's filling in on Father's Day for me. But the way the calendar fell this year, this uh, I happen to be here on Father's Day. It's not that I've been running away from Father's Day. It's just the way it works. But, you know, it also occurred to me that even though I may not be a holiday speaker, as far as I'm concerned, just about every service and every every Sunday is, hol- is uh, Father's Day. Because we're here to talk about our Heavenly Father. Now, there's, you know as well as I do, with all the problems and all the, the uh, degradation, I don't know if that's the proper word to use, but we'll try that one, of society and, and the way things are going, we hear a lot about the breakdown of the family. Folks, the breakdown of the family comes down to one thing, and that is the absence of the father. It's not the mothers that have left. Uh, to be real honest with you, I don't know how single mothers do it. They do a wonderful job in, in raising their kids, and, and they're pulled at both ends, and, and there's got to be a special reward for them in heaven for the work that they do. But it never was intended by God for it to be that way. Children need their fathers. They need the stability of fathers. They need the, 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 the strength of fathers. And that's the breakdown of the family in our society. It's the absence of fathers. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, we have a tendency to relate to things as we know them naturally. What I mean by that is we know the trouble that we have in, uh, in society where fathers are concerned. We have absentee fathers. We have abusive fathers. And so consequently, the church has taken those natural experiences uh, and uh, experiences regarding fatherhood, and they've applied them to, to our Heavenly Father. Most of the church world doesn't know if God's really there. Or if he's there, what does there mean? Yeah, he's, okay, he's up there in heaven, but is he there for me, and, and is he available to help me when I need help? And as a result, so many times Christians, because they don't know how to pray, they don't know how to use the Word of God, to get answers to their prayer, they pray things hoping God will help them out, bail them out, show mercy to them just because they're asking him to, but because they have no basis in the word of God, those prayers go unanswered. And so that solidifies or confirms the the wrong thinking that many have that God's really not there, even though the Bible says he is. On the other hand, just as there are natural and abusive fathers in the natural, so many times the church has preached that God sometimes does things to abuse his own children. Things like bring sickness and disease upon them, tragedy, take loved ones from them and from their lives, and things like that. And people attribute that to God and say, well, we just don't ever know why that is, but God must have some greater plan. Yet, if we applied those things in a natural sense, natural context, we'd put those people in jail, those fathers in jail that treat their kids that way. Now, on the other hand, we have situations where young men and women in their quest, journey 
to, to grow into adulthood, rebel against their fathers or their family's rules and regulations and become estranged from their fathers. And tragically, maybe equally as tragic as, as some of the other things that we've already mentioned, sometimes those fathers pass away before those young men and women gain the maturity to realize what a good man or a good father he might have been. Well, all of those things apply spiritually because that's exactly what the church world does when it comes to God. So much of the church either doesn't know that he's a good God, they don't know that he's not the one bringing tragedy in their lives or, or sickness or whatever the case is. But then right on the other hand, if, if, if you solve that or it's not an issue for you, maybe you're, uh, somebody is just living a life where there's not a lot of problems, then it's not an issue for them. But on the other side, they never find out the goodness and the, and the strength and the, the mercy of their own heavenly father. Jesus said something that was very, very significant and he sent it to the people that he was closest to. Did you find John 14 yet? Okay, John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking about going to his father. He starts off in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If you do a study, uh, just pull up on a a concordance or or, or computer program or something like that, all the times that Jesus talked about his Father, you'll be amazed. Jesus talked constantly about his Father. Here he's doing it again. So he talks about going to his Father. Verse 6 He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, if God is his Father, then that means he's the only way there is to God. No matter what other religions may claim, Jesus is the only way to God. Now, that's either true or it's false, folks. There's no middle ground. Jesus wasn't mistaken. He either lied or he told the truth. If you had known me, you should have also known my Father. Now, verse 7 is getting to what I want to speak to you about this morning. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Folks, that's the reason why so much of the church does not know who God is. Yeah, but they're saved, Pastor Mike. We made Jesus the Lord of our lives. There's a difference in being saved and knowing Jesus. Huge difference. Huge difference. If you had known me, you had known, also known my father. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Then Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it will suffice us. Lord, uh, we'll be satisfied if you just show us the father. Philip thinks that he has not seen God. Why does Philip think that he has not seen God? Because he has not seen God. How many have ever seen God? Looked on the face of God? Nobody. We don't get to see that yet. That's what Philip's saying. He's saying, we haven't seen God. What do you mean, Jesus? You're saying a lot of good stuff. It sounds nice, but we haven't seen him. But show him to us. Now, notice what Jesus answers. He said unto him, verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, folks, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that God is Christ-like. We don't usually use those terms because Christians are supposed to be Christ-like, right? He's saying God is Christ-like. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I am God-like. That means if we are Christ-like, we are God-like. You know, it's an amazing thing. 
Because when you talk about knowing God, and, and, and you know as well as I do, look at all the arguments that are in church about what is God doing and why is he doing it. Tornadoes, hurricanes, storms, different things like that. you got half the church world saying God's bringing judgment. you got a few others that are saying, no, God doesn't bring judgment. He judged sin. Satan is the God of this world. And the most, the majority of the church hears that and says, you gotta be crazy. God is sovereign. God is doing everything. Yet the Bible, even Jesus himself, said that Satan was the one in control. And he gained that control through man's fall in the Garden of Eden. Paul identifies that in 2 Corinthians 4 4. He said Satan is the God of this world. How can Satan be the God of this world if God is sovereign? Because God sovereignly delivered authority here in the earth to Adam, and Adam gave it away to Satan. It was in Adam's control. It was in Adam's authority. It was under his purview, and he delivered it to Satan. Therefore, Satan is the God of this world. Oh, Pastor Mike, that can't be right. It is right, and we see it identified by Jesus' experience with Satan. When Jesus was tempted of the devil, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, I'll give you every one of these things because it's been delivered unto me. You worship me, and I'll give it to you. How could Satan give that if he didn't, if he wasn't the God of this world? Now, Jesus did not rebuke him and say, Satan, you're a liar. That's not yours. Now, if Satan was lying, that would have been Jesus' appropriate response. But instead, Jesus said, I'm only going to worship God. He didn't say it's not yours. He says, I'm only going to worship God because it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord and him only shalt thou serve. So Satan is the one bringing tragedy into the earth, yet God gets the credit for it. Who does he get the credit from? The church. The ones that are supposed to know him. You know the number one hindrance to people uh, praying the prayer of faith to receive their healing? They don't know if it's the will of God to heal them. How do we not know God on something as important a subject as healing and or sickness? How do we not know? Well, Jesus said he that's seen me has seen the Father. So if he's telling the truth, that means whatever we see Jesus doing in any area is what God does in any area. What we see Jesus' attitude toward and his response to any circumstance or any situation is got to be God's response and attitude to any and every circumstance. Do we see Jesus turning away anybody that came to him for healing? Not one. With all the people in the church world that say, well, God has brought this into my life to teach me something. Did Jesus ever say, keep this sickness because God's teaching you something? Not once. Where does the church get that idea? Here's the reality, folks. If we try to judge God or determine an attitude, come uh, conclude some kind of attitude or some kind of... Uh, uh, determination about who God is and how God operates, apart from what Jesus did or said, we are completely in the dark. And in many areas, the church is completely in the dark when it comes to the Heavenly Father. Now, there's only one way you can know somebody, naturally or spiritually, and that is by what they say and what they do. Let's keep reading here. We stopped in verse uh, 9. Notice what Jesus said in verse 10. Talking about the same thing, talking about he that has seen me has seen the Father, talking about knowing God. He said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. 
But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Jesus is saying the words that he spoke, he got from his Father. The works that happened were caused by or done by God through him. The Heavenly Father through him. So Jesus is saying everything about me, everything you've heard me say, everything you've seen me do has been the Father in action. In other words, you can know the Father through me because I've spoken his words and I've done what he has given me to do. I, my father died when, uh, my natural father died when I was 25, 24 years old. Uh, first couple of days of May, uh, 1980. And, um, I can't, I really can't tell you a handful of, of times. I, I just don't remember a handful of times that, um, that my father and I either had serious talks or, or experiences together or something like that, like that. He just never was around. He and my mom divorced just a couple of years before uh, before he died, and uh, um, well, what would have been seven years, I guess, six, uh, eight years before before he died, and he wasn't around when they were married, and he really wasn't around after they got divorced. But you know, it's an amazing thing. Uh, like I said, there, there's maybe I could I could struggle to get maybe ten things, ten experiences that I had with my dad. But one that stands out above every other one is when I was about fourteen years old. My dad and I were riding in the car, and he said something. I don't know what we were talking about. I don't remember the circumstances surrounding it. But he said something that was so profound to me because he said, Mike, a man is only as good as his word. And boy, I mean, when he said that, that went straight in my heart. Whether he knew it or not, he was speaking by the Holy Ghost. It was an experience that 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 I believe God inspired and, and determined, set up, whatever. But I remember thinking at the time, you just told me that you're no good. Because he'd make all kinds of promises and never keep a one of them. For that reason, now I was, I was blessed, I should back up a little bit. I was blessed to, uh, to have, uh, uh, been around some men that were good men. Two men in particular. That, uh, that were good fathers. They were good men. One was a, a strong man of character. He was a good moral man. Uh, the other was Brother Hagen, who was my spiritual father. And as a result, I saw what uh, what good men were supposed to be. But until really, until I got around Brother Hagen, the the other man wasn't really a spiritual man. He he was saved, but it wasn't. Um, he was just a good man, you know. I, I don't know how to describe it any other way than that. He was the the father of a girl that I was dating, dated for about three years, and. Uh, I really got closer to the family than I did her, and um, um, breaking up was kind of tough because I like them, you know. If we break up, can I keep your family kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but it was only until I got around Brother Hagen that I found out what a, what a spiritual man was like. And I found the, uh, the, for the first time that I had ever had any experience with, somebody that lived their lives according to the Word, whose character was based on what the Bible said, whose morals were based on what the Bible said, whose actions were based on what the Bible said, and who said what the Bible says. I'd never been around that before. And the, the, the impact that that had on me, somebody that was living according to the Word of God, made a profound difference in my life because it was the first time that I ever had the idea, ever had an understanding that you could trust God's word because before then the only thing i had experience with was my own father and you couldn't trust him for anything now everybody else could everybody else in town talked about what an honest man he was if he gave you his word man it was good as gold 
but not with his family. I have no idea why that was. To this day, I can't explain it. But it created something in me to where I, I'd see what the Bible says and think, well, yeah. God's, but God's your father. Yeah, okay, well, I know how that works. But when I find out from the life of a man, I can't tell you five sermons that Brother Hagin preached, uh, or I could, well, okay, I could probably come up with about five or six sermons that impacted my life. But his life changed me. Because I saw that he lived according to the word. I saw that he lived according to what the Bible said was true. In other words, when I saw him and his life, I saw Jesus. Because Jesus is the word made flesh. That changed my life. It altered the course of my life. It changed the direction of my life. It's the reason that I'm standing here doing what I do today. It's the reason for any other good thing that God ever does in my life. That was it, was because I saw the word work in somebody's life. I saw somebody live by the word, and I saw what it produced in their lives. That's why we emphasize the word of God so much around here. Some say too much. I don't think that's possible. But that's why there's such an emphasis on the word of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm speaking God's words, and I'm doing his words. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. You know what's interesting? You look at all the times that Jesus talked about, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let's look at one. Look with me over to John 15. John 15. Jesus said, if you abide in me, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein, in this way, you getting your prayers answered. In this way, is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, the fruit he's talking about is answered prayer. Now, it's conditional. If you abide in him, he's talking about relationship, and the word of God abides in you. So he's talking about a relationship with God. We know of that as salvation. And he's talking about a relationship through the word. In other words, your prayer is based on his word. Then you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in verse 7 of John chapter 15, you is in that verse five times. God's not in there once. Your prayers being answered has more to do with you than it has to do with God. Now, here's the result that answered prayer brings. Verse 8, he says, herein, in this manner, or in this way, is my Father glorified that you may bear much fruit. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you do a study of all the times Jesus talked about the Father you'll find that with very few exceptions, he's talking about either the Father or my Father. He hardly ever calls the, our, his heavenly Father their Father. Now, an exception to that would be when his disciples came and asked Jesus to teach them to pray. What's the first thing he taught them? He said, start your prayer like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's showing them a principle for prayer based on God being Father. But apart from that, and maybe a couple of other examples, a couple of other exceptions, he always talks about the father or my father, never their father. Why? Because God wasn't their father yet. You know where that changed? Let me show you over in John chapter 20. It changes when Jesus is raised from the dead. John chapter 20, it says that... Uh, this is when uh, uh, Jesus is, is raised up. He appears in the garden. Um, 
Peter, John, and, and um, Mary Magdalene are, are there, and, and uh, she winds up, Mary being the only one there at the time. And uh, uh, where do we want to start? Uh, verse 13, And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Now, these were two angels. Verse 12 says they were two angels. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, but didn't know that it was Jesus. Apparently, he looked different than he did when he was here on the earth. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary, called her by name. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. She recognized him when he called her by name. And he said to her, Jesus said to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father. Now that he's raised from the dead, he's paid the price for spiritual death, sin and death. Now God is their father too. But tell unto, say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Turn with me over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus said, And in that day you shall ask me nothing, literally no more questions. But verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name. This is before he went to the cross, so he's still the Father. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked nothing in my name. Ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. Now, I want you to notice this. John chapter 15, he talks about what if you abide in him and his word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you, and the Father is glorified because of that. Here in John chapter 16, he said, whatever questions you have, you won't ask me after his resurrection, but we'll go directly to the Father for that purpose, to get our answers. And he said, the Father will give it to you, ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. He says that answered prayer glorifies God, and he says God wants you to live a joyful life by having the information and the things you need. And they're all based on relationship, God being your Father. Relationship with God is your Father. Relationship with the Word of God, which is the basis for everything that we know and have record of about Jesus being like his Father. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14, he said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and who under, uh, uh, I lost it. Let me turn there. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, For this cause, let me try it again. I found it. For this cause, I'll bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom, I was tripping over of whom, I couldn't figure out how the verse started, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family. Look at that. Notice it talks about God being a father of a family. Now, some of the families already in heaven. Our loved ones who are saved, and all those who have been saved since Jesus was raised from the dead and gone on to glory, they're still part of the same family. Notice there's not two churches. There's not one church in heaven and one church here on the earth. There's one church. And the Bible calls it a family. 
Now, family is always based, or at least intended, the way God created the family. The family is based on the father. No slam against the mothers. Like I said, single mothers, I don't know how you do it. There has to be a special reward in heaven. I hope that you get some of that reward down here too. But God intended the father to be the leader of the family. So when it talks about the family in heaven and earth, the church, God is the leader. God the father is the leader of the family. Everything about Jesus was to point us to the father. The Bible says even at the end when Jesus is is crowned and, and receives all the glories and everything that in front of the church after the end of the world and all that kind of stuff, the Bible says he lays his crowns at the feet of the Father. Everything is pointed to the Father. Jesus is not trying to gain any attention, any accolades, any any credit for himself. He earned everything that he has, but he's going to lay it at the feet of the Father. For that same, in that, along that same line, according to that same principle, we're supposed to do the same work as Jesus did here on the earth so that at the end we can lay it at the feet of the Father too, saying, Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we've had to be like you. Now here's, here's the thing I want you to get. Um, I, I'm having trouble saying this because it's um, uh, because I see a glimpse of it. I wish I saw more of it than I do. But I, I see a glimmer of this. There was only one way for God to satisfy the needs of mankind. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, spiritual death took hold of man. Sin and death ruled and reigned. We've been talking about that some in previous services. And spiritual death ruled and reigned over mankind. Man was sunk. There's no way out. Because there is no way that man in and of himself can overcome sin or death. He's got to have help. This idea that the world has in New Age and some of this other kind of universalism and some of this kind of stuff, that there's a spark of divinity in every man, that's not true. It can't be true. Because if there was a spark of divinity in every man, that means that man could develop himself, which is what all false religions are based on. You work, you uh, learn, you develop. Uh, Buddhism is all about coming to a higher plane and that kind of stuff. Well, what is that? That's the idea that there's a spark of divinity in all of mankind and all we have to do is develop ourselves and come to a higher state of consciousness and then we'll be okay. That's impossible. If that's the case, then sin and death are not really ruling on the earth. Because if sin and death are ruling on the earth, that means man is totally encompassed and held in bondage by that sin and death. He needs somebody to pull him out. It's like being in quicksand. You can't get yourself out. Somebody is going to have to give you some help, reach down into the thing that's got you stuck, and pull you out. Now, the way that Jesus pulled us out is that he became man. Now, how did he become man? Well, in order to bypass the sin and death that rules on the earth, he had to be born of a virgin. That's called the incarnation. Incarnation means God coming to earth, appearing on the earth as human. It means the joining of God and man, divinity and humanity. So there was an incarnation, and this incarnation caused mankind to have hope because now there is the potential. When Jesus is in the... In the um, um, What's that thing called? Manger. When Jesus was in the manger, there was a potential for man to be rescued. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope for mankind. 
Because man cannot overcome. He cannot develop himself. He cannot grow. He cannot attain some higher state of consciousness to overcome sin and death. Sin and death is the eternal punishment for Adam's sin, his disobedience. And, and man is bound by that still. Man is bound by that. Apart from Jesus, there's no way out of that. So God developed the plan, or had the plan really, before he even made mankind. But he fulfilled the plan by Jesus coming to the earth. The incarnation was a necessity so that divinity could join with humanity and provide hope or salvation. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Jesus talked about being born again. He said, old things pass away and all things become new. In other words, what that means is, just as real as God came to the earth, God appeared in human form at the incarnation, you had an incarnation when you accepted Jesus as your Savior. Just as real as Jesus was God born of a virgin, you were born of God when you were saved. Jesus was no more. And here's the part I have trouble with because people turn off on this. I'm not having trouble with it because it's not true or I'm not sure. I'm having trouble because I know this is where I lose people. Jesus was no more the appearance of God on the earth when he was born of a virgin than you are the appearance of God when you were saved. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? You know what's even harder to swallow? Psalm 2 verse 7 says, God spoke and said to his son, Jesus, this day have I begotten thee, this day art thou my beloved son. Do you know when that's talking about? Acts chapter 13, Paul speaking, uh, talking to the Jews in the synagogue, Paul said that that was said of Jesus when he was raised from the dead, not when he was born of a virgin. So just as real as you have been born again, Jesus was born again. Jesus was came to the earth. The incarnation was the appearance of God, the life of God here in mankind in human form. He died, meaning he lost that life. He became sin itself to pay the punishment for sin. He had to become sin, the Bible says. Consequently, he paid the price in those three days and nights in the heart of the earth, literally in the, the belly of, of hell, the depths of hell. And then it says Jesus was raised from the dead. And that point that he was raised from the dead, that's when God said, Thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee. This day have I begotten thee. Not 30 years earlier, 33 years earlier in the, in the manger. This day have I begotten thee. Jesus was born again from death, just like you were. Remember the last thing Jesus said, hanging on the cross? He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He trusted his Father to work out the plan. And the culmination or the completion of that plan brought about the new birth for you and me. Now, the Bible says Jesus hated the cross. He despised the cross. He despised the shame of the cross. He didn't want to do it. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if there's another way, let's take it the other way. I don't want this. The Bible says part of the reason, I believe the biggest part of it, was that he knew the punishment that he was going to have to pay in those three days and nights in hell. 
Psalm 87, I believe it is, describes some of that. It's awful. If you look at the words and, and study out what the, the meaning of the, the true meaning of the words, it's terrible. I believe Jesus was recoiling from that. But he submitted himself to the will of God. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. But it says that he, that he um, uh, despised the cross and the shame thereof. So why did he go through with it? The Bible tells us that too. It says, for the joy set before him, he did it. Now, what's the joy set before him? Is it that he knows, okay, after I'm raised from the dead, then I'll go to heaven and, and I'll get a big crown and then I'll really be something? Folks, he was something before he later decided came to the earth. He was co-equal with God. He didn't do it for anything. The joy set before him had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with what he could gain. He prays in John chapter 17, Father, return to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Well, there's an easy way to have that glory. Just don't come to the earth. He already had it. So the joy had nothing to do with him. Well, then what did the joy have to do with? It had to do with you. You were the reason that he was willing to suffer the price. It was for your sake so that you could have a relationship with God, have your life filled with joy by getting your prayers answered because God is just as much your father as he was Jesus's. You look at, um, um, turn back with me to John chapter 8. I do this every time I come back from vacation. Forgive me on this. But I get about three works, weeks worth of preaching st- stuck inside. Nowhere to go for those two weeks. And so I just dump it all on you when I come home. Jesus is talking about him being of his father. He said, uh, um, look at verse 38. We'll just pick out a few of these here. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Galatians 3 says that Christ was, that God preached Christ To Abraham. Abraham saw. Abraham saw what the plan of God was. He said, you're trying to kill me. That wasn't Abraham's attitude. They said unto him, or Jesus answered in verse 41, he went further. He said, you do the deeds of your father. They said unto him, we have not been born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Oh, yeah. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why did they fight against Jesus so much? Because they refused the word that promised Jesus coming. Folks, nothing has changed. It's easy to say, I love God. It's another thing to live by what the Bible says. Remember, that's what Jesus talks about at the end. He talks about lukewarm Christians. People that say one thing and live another way. Brother Hagin used to... um, have an illustration, tell a story in uh, the early days of his ministry and, and uh, uh, some of the, well, he called it the owl sermon, O-W-L, owl sermon. He said he had a friend that uh, was raised on a farm and there were two baby owls that I don't know what happened. The, the mother was killed or whatever. But, and so he raised them as from little baby chicks or whatever you call baby owls. I don't know. 
And so anyway, he said over a period of time, one uh, stood about 40 inches high, which I guess would be about this high, and the other was a couple of inches shorter, pretty big birds. And he said that uh, there were certain things about these birds that were were very interesting. He said that uh, they wouldn't eat out of the other one's dish. They had to have their own dish. And he said they'd sit there waiting. He said, I never was able to get up earlier than them. He said, they'd always be waiting in the morning for me to, to feed them, give them scraps from the table, whatever it was that they had, you know, out on the farm. And he said, they'd sit there, and I would, as I'd start to feed them, he said, as soon as I'd start to put the food in the bowl, they'd start nodding their head. Yes, like like we'd nod yes, just like this. And he said that, uh, he said they wouldn't eat while I was standing there. So I'd go around the side of the barn or something like that and peek out and look. And he said, after I was gone, they couldn't see me. Then they'd start eating. And he said that uh, all the time that I'd be around, they'd be sitting there, you know, standing there, nodding their head, yes. I mean, here's the owls, you know, this tall, sitting there nodding, yes, just like this. He said, then I'd come out after they were finished eating. I'd come out and I'd uh, retrieve the bowls or do whatever. They'd see me around. And then they'd start going like this, shaking their head like, like they're saying no. He said, I learned something about the, about the owls. He said, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, I got the story wrong. He said, after they were finished eating, then that's when they'd nod their head or shake their heads like they were saying no. Not when he was around, but when they would, when he was gone. He said, I learned something about that. He said, that's the way Christians are. They'll come to church and say, yes, amen, yes. <laughs> then they'll go out and they'll live like this. Pretty good illustration, isn't it? Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. Finally, Jesus finishes this up in verse 58 and says unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? Well, I am is what God claimed before Moses in the burning bush. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am God. Then they took up stones to cast at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. Look at chapter 10. Jesus talks about my sheep hear my voice, verse 27, and I know them and they follow me. Verse 29, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand, or out of my father's hand. Verse 30, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. You'd think Jesus would learn. Every time he claims to be God, every time he claims to be one with the Father, that's when they want to kill him. Folks, that same spirit of religion is in the earth today. That's the greatest hindrance you're ever going to have spiritually. That's the greatest opposition you're ever going to face. You come to the place where you begin to accept, I am a new creature. I'm just as righteous as Jesus was because of his work, not because of me, but because of what he did. I am just as much a child of God as Jesus was. God's just as much my father as he was Jesus' father. You start taking that position. I have the same power that God entrusted Jesus with here on the earth. I can do the same things Jesus did here on the earth because Jesus delegated that power to me. I have the name of Jesus, which is above every other name. You start making those steps, and that's where the devil will come against you like never before. And you know the way he does it? Through other people. Look at the trouble that the word of faith group gets in the body of Christ. We're claimed to be cults. We're claimed to be anything but Christian. 
By who? By the world? No, the world doesn't care. It's the church. You start saying that you can have what you say. You start saying that you can stand on the word and get the results that the Bible promises. You start taking that position and look at how people come out against you. Other Christians I'm talking about. Look at the opposition that rises up. Why? Because the devil does not want you to find out who you are. Jesus was born again from the dead just like you were born again from the dead. No difference. Yours is the same new birth that he has. Now, our problem is we have trouble accepting that. Well, I feel unworthy, Pastor Mike. How can I be born again? How can I be, how can I really be what the Bible says because of the way that I feel? I'm sure glad that Jesus didn't let that hang him up. I'm glad he's not at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, am I really born again? I mean, have I really been given all authority in heaven and earth? I mean, I, I, I know how I was made sin. It wasn't my fault, but I know how I was made sin and I remember the suffering in, in hell and all that kind of stuff and, Can you just pat me on the back here a little bit, Father, and make me feel better about this? I'm glad that's not where he's at. He's got the same new birth that you've got. Same exact thing. Not a similar, not a parallel, the same new birth. You are just as much God incarnate here on the earth as Jesus was when he was born of a virgin. Now, what do I mean by that? Does that, does that mean you are the Son of God? Does that mean you're the Messiah? No, that means you've got the same life that Jesus had. There's not two lives of God. There's not a life of God that Jesus had and another life that the church has. It's all the same life of God. And see, that's where you lose people. Because people hear that and they say, oh, he's gone off the edge now. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. You know what Jesus prayed? Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that you would be one with the Father just as he is one with the Father. How is that possible? Through his resurrection. Let me conclude with this. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 4. What does all this mean? Well, here's what it means. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's start in verse 14. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Thank God he has passed into heavens. This was a tough thing for the disciples to understand. They never wanted Jesus to go away. Now, I can relate to that. If we were there, we would have thought the same thing, wanted the same things, right? Jesus starts talking about going away and being crucified and stuff like that. Peter says, no, no, Lord, that's not right. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I don't think Peter was trying to be Satan or speak Satan's word. He was just trying to say, we don't want to lose you. Stay with us. But Jesus kept saying, it's better for you that I go away. Can you imagine, if you were one of the twelve, can you imagine being able to comprehend that? How is it possible that it's better for us for you to go away? I would have had a hard time with that. Now, Jesus understood the plan of God, and they didn't. I get that part. But man, better for us? Before you came along, we were fishermen, barely making it. Now we're laying hands on the sick and watching crippled people get up. We're watching leprosy being cleansed. We see you walk on the water, and we even did it with you. And it's better for us for you to go away? Seeing then that we have a high priest, a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession.
What does he mean? Profession is the same word translated confession in the New Testament. It means keep speaking the truth of the word. Because Jesus has passed into the heavens, what are we, what's our responsibility? What's our uh, what's the, the the end result of that? Speak the word. Why? Jeremiah one one twelve says God will hasten His word to perform it. The word hasten in the Hebrew literally means watch over it. We talked about fathers. A man's only as good as his word. My dad said, "That's true." God watches over His word to bring it to pass. There is not one. Part of any word that's ever been spoken that God doesn't watch over to make sure that it comes to pass, that it comes to reality. Every little thing that he said, God watches over it. He's aware of it. He doesn't forget what he says. He's aware of it. He watches over it. He causes it to come to pass. For whom? For those that speak it. Now, there are some things that God says that he takes care of, whether man speaks it or not. For example, the Bible says that that God has spoken that Jesus will come back for the church. He's coming back whether you confess the rapture or not. Confess, don't confess, doesn't matter to me. Jesus is coming back. It's going to be kind of funny when a lot of people, you know, who thought Jesus was coming back at one point in time, find out that he comes back sooner. Well, but Pastor Mike, is he coming back in the middle of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation or whatever? I believe it's going to be like this. You believe whatever you want to. Jesus is coming back when he comes. Well, do you know when that is, Pastor Mike? Yeah, I believe I do. But the important thing for me is not when it happens. I just want to make sure I go on the first load. So there are some things that have nothing to do with your confession. God will make sure that those things happen. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because somebody confessed that he'd be raised from the dead. God fulfills his plans and his purposes. But the things that we have in Christ come to pass because we confess them. Because we believe in our heart and say with our mouth. So he says, since seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our professions. Think about what that means. That means the whole result, the end result of Jesus being raised to the, and seated at the right hand of God the Father is so that you would speak the word of promise so that it would become a reality. The promises of God, those things that are spoken of concerning healing, concerning well-being in every area, concerning financial provision, anything and everything the Bible says that Jesus accomplished and Jesus did for us, the Bible says that the whole reason Jesus was raised from the dead is so that we would speak those things so that they would come to pass. God must have wanted that pretty much. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was just like Just the same, just like you. The only difference is he never fell. But God does not emphasize the fact that he never fell. He emphasizes the fact that Jesus is just like you and can relate. The emphasis is not on, well, Jesus never missed it and you dirty dog, you have. No, the emphasis is Jesus has been where you are. Now, he never fell, so he can, but he understands you. He knows where you're coming from. That implies that Jesus could have fallen just as easily as we fall. Thank God he didn't. So what are we to do about this? Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly. 
not arrogantly. Folks, there's a big difference in arrogance and boldness. A lot of what you see in the body of Christ now that people claim is boldness is just arrogance. But it does say, let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because God is your father. What's the whole purpose of God being your father? So that you have grace. Now, grace is defined as unmerited favor usually. Uh, one uh, translation says that this word grace means love gifts. That you might find love gifts. Well, every gift that we have is because of the love of God sending Jesus on the earth. So again, my definition of grace still holds true. And that is the finished work of Jesus. So he says, let us come boldly under the throne of grace. Under the throne of the finished work of Jesus. For what purpose? That we might obtain mercy and find grace, the finished work of Jesus, to help in time of need. Folks, think about the promises that Jesus made. He said, anything you ask the Father in his name, God would give it to you. How did he know what you were going to ask? How could he make that promise? He said, anything you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. That has to mean that something is all-encompassing to be able to make that kind of promise. That has to mean that the name of Jesus is so, which the name of Jesus represents the finished work of Christ. That has to mean that his name is so all-encompassing that there's nothing you could ask in his name that he wouldn't fulfill. Brother Hagin used to tell another story about a guy that um, uh, was uh, a, a preacher. He was kind of an itinerant minister. He'd preach. Uh, it's not like he'd travel a long way or anything like that, but he was kind of a local preacher, late preacher. And he owned uh, self-service laundromats. And uh, this was many, many years ago. And, and um, uh, this, he said, one day, you know, midweek service, whatever it was, um, he said that day every washer he had broke down. So he, instead of preparing for the service that night at the church 30 miles away, whenever, however far it was, he said that he spent an all day long fixing his washers and all that kind of stuff, gets in his car, cleans up, finally, you know, rushes down the road, Drives this 30 miles trying to get to wherever he's going. He's going through this little town, not paying attention, thinking about trying to get something to preach and that type of thing. Not paying attention, he runs a red light. There's only one red light in town, so he runs a red light. So shortly thereafter, he saw a police car behind him flashing red lights, and so he pulls over, and the policeman said, uh, uh, did you know that you ran a red light? And he said, what red light? I didn't even see a light. And he said, uh, He said, well, you ran the red light through town, and you went through town at 35 miles an hour, and it's 25 mile an hour speed zone. And so the guy said, well, I noticed I was going 35 when you pulled me over. He said, but I'll have to take your word on for running that red line. I'm sorry, officer, I wasn't aware. So he told him the story. I'm going to preach. Washers broke down. All this kind of stuff didn't work. Officer wrote him a ticket. <laughs> he had to come back to that town, you know, a week or so later, whenever it was, to appear in court. So he goes to court, and he stands before the judge, and, and the judge, you know, his case is called. And so... Uh, he says to the judge, can I plead my own case? And he said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he said, well, your honor, he said, uh, told him the story. I'm a lay preacher. is going to preach the service and um, washers broke down, spent all day long fixing my washers, that kind of stuff. And he said, now, he said, I'll have to take the officer's word for it. He said, I, I'm not aware of a 
red light. He said, uh, first time I've seen that red light or been aware of the red lights when I came back to town today. He said, but he said I ran it, so he must be right, and maybe I did. I do know that I was going 35 miles an hour when he pulled me over, like he said. He said, so point number one is I'm guilty. He said, but I just want to know, I want you to know, I've got one nickel in my pocket. So if you find me, you're going to have to send me to jail and I'll have to work off the time at the county farm or whatever, you know, as things were in those days, the good old days maybe to some. And, um, um, but he said, uh, but he said, officer, I'm not here to ask for justice. If, if you serve justice on me, I'm going to jail. He said, I'm here to ask for mercy. He said, now, may I, uh, may I pull out my New Testament? And the judge said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he said, uh, he turns over to, I think it's uh, John chapter 8, where the woman was taken in adultery. He said there was a woman that was taken in the very act of adultery. And the, the religious leaders came and they said to him, said to Jesus, you know, the law says to stone her, what do you say we ought to do? And Jesus said, let him that is without stone, without sin cast the first stone. And then he knelt down in the, in the dirt and started writing things. And he said when he looked up, everybody was gone and only the woman was there. And he said to the woman, uh, where are your accusers? She said, sir, I have none. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the judge said, is that in the Bible? He said, yeah, it's right here. It's in John chapter 8. He said, well, I'm a Sunday school teacher. He said, uh, I'm, I'm going to use that next Sunday in, in, uh, in my court. And he said, nah, but he said, nah, but, but what do you, what does that have to do with this case? And he said, officer, or he said, your honor, he said, I'm here to tell you that if you'll forgive this, if you'll show mercy on me and forgive my wrongdoing, I will go and sin no more. And so the judge slammed the gavel down. He said, case dismissed. I'm going to use that for my Sunday school lesson this, this week. Folks, you don't need mercy unless you're in trouble. You don't need mercy if you've got everything handled. You don't need mercy if you're in the right. You need mercy when you're being attacked. You need mercy when you've missed it. You need mercy when you have failed. Other than that, you can say, Lord, justice will serve me. I'm in the right. Judge me righteously. David said that sometimes. He said, Lord, judge me according to the integrity of my heart. But then other times he said, oh, Lord, have mercy. You need both, depending on where you're at. The whole purpose in Jesus being raised from the dead, the whole purpose in God becoming your father, is so that you can come boldly to the throne of grace, the finished work of Jesus that you may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. Find help in time of need. You know, one of the scriptures that has blessed me so greatly in, in throughout the years, it says in Psalm 84, I think it's verse 11. I'm not sure the verse number, but it's Psalm 84. It says, the Lord withholds no good thing to them that walk uprightly. It didn't say to those that never miss it. If he'd said that, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been any point in putting it in there, would it? He withholds no good thing to them that walk uprightly. God is so good. He is such a good father that he will not ever withhold any good thing from you. Now, the church goes into conniptious fits about what's good. Well, maybe it's good that this sickness has come upon me to teach me. Yet the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good and healing. So if we're going to look at Jesus as the determining factor for what is God's will and what's God's like, healing is what God calls good, not sickness. 
Not only that, but we see in Jesus that he met people's physical needs. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes to feed people. So feeding people must be good as far as God's concerned. The Bible says over and over and over again that as we give, it's given unto us. It says that as we act on the principles of God's word, he brings increase into our lives. Those are the things that are good in God's eyes. The Bible even goes so far as to say that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Well, you can't leave an inheritance if you don't have anything. So he's talking about having enough not only to meet your needs, but to provide for others down the line. That's what God considers good. Now, the church does it. Church has this idea, or much of the church at least, has this idea that God wants you broke so that you can be humble. Most of the people I've found that are broke aren't humble. They're greedy. Because they're trying so hard to get something they don't have. Being broke doesn't make anybody humble. If that were the case, all we'd have to do is go down into the streets and look for the people living under the bridges to find the real humble people. It's not the way it works, folks. Yet the church holds on to this stupid idea. No good thing will he withhold. No good thing will your father withhold. Not only that, but it spoke over and over again about your joy being full. God doing things for you and answering your prayer that your joy may be full. God wants you to enjoy life. What would it take for you to enjoy life? Whatever it is, that's what God wants it to be. Don't judge God by your natural father, by your earthly father. Because we can always find flaws in our earthly father. But our heavenly father is good all the time. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. From the father of lights. From the father of lights. That phrase always bothered me. The father of lights. You look up that word light and you know what it means? It means light. Okay, well, how does that fit? The father of lights? What does that mean? God's the father of stars? What does that mean? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 1, uh, what is it, 131, Psalm 119, verse 130, it says, the entrance of God's word gives light. So that, for me, that word light, the father of lights, means the father of enlightenment. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the, from above, from the father of enlightenment. With whom there is neither variableness nor shadow of turning. Not only does God not change from always being good, He never even considers not being good. He's only good. And no good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. That's who your Heavenly Father is. You know, Brother Hagin used to make a statement. He used to say, God's more and more real to me than the car that I drive. He's more real to me than my wife is. I'd hear things like that and I'd think, how in the world is that possible? I found that it is. And I found that the way that you get there, the way that you come to that understanding, is when you accept his word to be true, infallible, and unfailing. It's only through his word you'll ever know him. And in so doing, that's how you... Recognize him through Jesus because Jesus was the word made flesh. What good things do you need for your life to be full of joy? That's what God wants you to have. What is it necessary for you to have? Is it healing? 
for you to enjoy life? Is it prosperity? Provision? Is it peace? What good thing is necessary for you to enjoy your life? That's what God wants you to have. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a good heavenly father. Jesus gave us examples, several examples of us as parents. If we being parents know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall our heavenly father give good things to them that ask him? Oh, Father, thank you that you withhold no good thing to them that walk uprightly, to them that walk according to your word, to those that believe and confess the truth of the word of God. No good thing will you withhold. No good thing will you withhold. No good thing will you withhold. I have it in my heart this morning to lay hands on the sick. If you're here this morning and there's sickness in your body and you want to receive your healing, would you stand to your feet, please? Well, now I know why I had it in my heart. All right. If you would be so kind as to come down here to the front. The ushers will help you. We want to line you up all the way around. Just kind of put your put your toes on the edge of this brown carpet there, if you will. Shoulder to shoulder. Now, how do we know that healing is part of the good things that God will do? Well, we just quoted Acts 10.38 to, to you a moment ago. But we'll say it again. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Tells us where sickness comes from. Sickness is always of the devil. Tells us that God considers healing to be good and that he anoints men here on the earth to bring about that healing. Now don't stand behind somebody. If you're, if somebody's already in front of you, go to the end there and we'll, we'll bring you up as we, as we find a spot. Hallelujah. Now, here's what I want you to do. First of all, I need you to believe three things. First of all, I need you to believe that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. If you were coming down here to get saved, you wouldn't be coming down here praying for the faith to get saved. You would have come down because you heard the word say that Jesus already paid the price for your sin, and so salvation was yours, right? You'd know what the Bible says, and so you'd accept it. Well, in the same way that the Bible says Jesus took your sins, the Bible says Jesus took your sickness. So don't come out down here looking for the faith to be healed. You get that from what the Bible says. That has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with accepting the truth of the word. There's a lot of things that the Bible says are going to be and, and already exist that I don't understand why or how. I don't know how we got born again. I just know we did. So you don't have to know the how. You don't have to feel it. You just have to accept it. So that's the first thing. The first thing is that you have to accept that Jesus has already paid the price for your sickness. He wants you to be well more than you want to be well. And he's made provisions for it to already be. The second thing I need you to believe is this. I need you to believe that God has anointed me to minister healing to the sick. Now, here's how we know that. James chapter 5, 
says in verse 14, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, when I say I'm anointed, I'm not talking about something special like me. God has provided a means for every pastor who accepts a word to provide healing for the people of his church. I just happen to be the ones called to be pastor here. So when I say that I need you to believe that I'm anointed, it's because the Bible says so. Jesus didn't appear to me. I don't have some special vision or revelation from God or anything like that. I'm not asking you to believe that. I'm just asking you to believe that this is the way God has provided for healing for his people. Okay? That's the second thing. The third thing I need you to believe is because those things are true, because Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, because he's provided for healing in the local church, I need you to believe that as soon as I lay hands on you and anoint you with oil, that's when your healing starts. Now, the Bible says that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. In other words, since we believe these things to be true, that prayer that we pray over you as we anoint you with oil will heal your body. Not maybe. If you came down here to give God a chance, you're in the wrong line. The Bible says this is how it works. We're just accepting what the Bible says. And it starts when I pray for you because that's what the word says to do. Now, from that point, it says the Lord shall raise you up. That could mean a number of things. That could mean your healing could be instant. It could mean your healing will begin and you'll, your body will amend from that point forward. I don't know how it's going to work. I'm not responsible for that. But I do know the Bible says the Lord shall raise you up. So that's what I need you to believe. I need you to believe those three things. Now, if you can't believe those three things, you're wasting your time and mine and taking somebody else's place. So if you don't believe those three things or not willing to, then just go, no hard feelings, just go on back to your seat and, and, and sit down. But if not, if you're willing to believe those three things, then we can guarantee according to the word of God. Jesus said heaven and earth shall pass away, but the word of God shall never fail. That means the healing word of God cannot fail for you. Do you understand that? All right. I've got some oil in here somewhere. Let me find it. All right, since we've got a lot of people here, we're not going to take time unless the Lord directs us to with each and every one of you. I don't need to know what the situation is. First of all, are you here for yourself? Is anybody here for me to pray on behalf of somebody else? Is that for anybody? Okay, good. Because this is for you. If you need us to pray for somebody else, believe for somebody else's healing, then we can do that, but that's in a different manner. So let's just pray over the whole group, and then we'll minister to you as the Lord directs us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. I thank you, Father, that because he's alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, we can boldly approach the throne of grace to bring help for these people. Your word's already provided a means for it, Father. I thank you that each and every one of these people are healed by faith in the name of Jesus. And as we anoint them with all and pray for the sick, I thank you, Father, that you will raise them up and their bodies will be healed in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Now, you in the congregation, stand up with us, if you will, please. I'm going to ask you to be involved in this. Now, if this was you up here, you'd want somebody else to take it serious enough to be a help rather than a hindrance, wouldn't you? All right. So I'm going to ask that there not be any moving around, that we give reverence to the Lord about this and recognize that this is something that God considers very, very, very important. It's certainly important to the people that want to receive their healing.
Amen. So stretch your hands out this way and agree with us in faith. Thank you, Father, for ministering to each and every one. As we lay hands on them and anointing with all, we thank you that the healing power of God goes into them to effect a healing and a cure in their bodies from the soles of their feet to the very top of their heads. I thank you, Father, that each and every one of these individuals are healed in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Oh, Father, it's so good to be healed. We thank you for doing the work. Be healed now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, for the supernatural provision that you've made for these people to be healed now. In Jesus' precious name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your healing power that affects a healing and a cure in them. Each and every one. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' name. Be healed 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 now in Jesus' name. Receive your healing in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took their infirmities and bare their sicknesses. And with his stripes, they were healed. Hallelujah. Be healed now in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. There it is. Be healed in Jesus' name. 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 Receive your healing in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. 
be healed. In Jesus' name. Receive your healing now. In Jesus' name. Be healed. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Here for her. Be healed now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be healed. In Jesus' name. Receive your healing. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's lift our hands and thank God for His Word. Thank you, Father, that according to Your Word, these people are healed. Healed by the prayer of faith and that You are raising them up. I thank You, Father, for a mighty, mighty work that takes place in their bodies from this moment forward. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad for God's Word? Praise the Lord. God's Word is true. Therefore, these people are healed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' precious name, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you, Father, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Earthly fathers may have departed and deserted us, but you'll never do it. You're always there, ready to help, always there to answer our prayers, always there to meet our needs. We thank you, Father, for doing a miraculous work in us. Father, there are those here today that need to know that you really are their father. I pray that you would show your mercy upon them in a, in a specific way that they would know and trace back to this time to recognize this is God showing me how much he loves me. Make it real in their lives this week, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen.